Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue an examination of our Methodist heritage by exploring the life of its founder, John Wesley, in our sermon series, The Faith of John Wesley. Join us now for our message, Joining the Holy Club. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer. I'm the senior pastor and it's wonderful to see the people out here in our sanctuary as well as all of you that are worshiping with us at home. And if this is your first time to be worshiping with us, then we offer you an especially warm welcome. How far is it too far to be following if you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus to the point where it's an obsession? And is John Wesley really the best role model for us to be holy? Well, we're going to talk about that a little later on in the service. But between now and then, we will be taking our live prayer requests as usual. If you are worshiping at home, then just post your uh, joys, concerns, or your request for a blessing right there in the Facebook feed. If you're here in the sanctuary, we do have our prayer request cards there at the back. I also want to invite you, if you've not done so already this week, to give an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do that on our website, tumcd.org. 
through our church center app or through mailing a check to the church. You can also give that way to our January communion rail offering, which is benefiting the Reconciling Ministries Network, which is the denominational organization that works, to, works for full inclusion of LGBTQ folks in the United Methodist Church. We also have three connection groups that meet during the week. We have two on Sunday morning, our UM Disciplines class and our Lift class, which right now is reading the book Revival, Faith as Wesley Lived It, which is one of the books in which uh, I am basing the sermon series on the faith of John Wesley. And then on Wednesday evenings, we have our pastor's Bible study at 7 o'clock on Zoom. And we're still uh, in the book of Exodus. And so now, let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with this opening chorus. Please join me in our opening prayer. Lord, we thank you for your church, founded upon your word, that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended upon us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children, black, white, red, brown, and yellow, will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God, we pray. Amen. That particular opening prayer was written by uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in, in lieu of our call to worship, we're going to do what I call the MLK Litany. This is a litany I put together several years ago, and the words from this litany are taking, taken directly from the words of Dr. King without editing on my part. And I would like to invite you to stand while we recite these words of Martin Luther King together. I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect. We have a dream. Many have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. We have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. All men are created equal. I have a dream that our children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We have a dream. This is our hope. This is our faith. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. We have a dream. 
We have this, with this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black and white, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And I pray that we will be able to make all of those words a reality. And I also pray for you to have the peace of the Lord, so peace be with you. Please join in the singing of our opening hymn, number 88, Maker in Whom We Live. You may be seated. <laughs> Please join me in our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply and from the heart, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. When we last left John Wesley, it was the year 1709, and he had barely escaped a fiery death as a five-year-old when the rectory in which his family lived was burned to the ground. And his father was an Anglican priest, and he was the rector, or the senior pastor, of the village church there in Epworth, England. Now, many Wesley scholars believe that the fire was set by arsonists, parishioners who were frustrated with the sometimes stuffy way of their very citified and highly educated rector Samuel Wesley and his brilliant wife Susanna. But within a year a new rectory had been built and this is where Susanna homeschooled all of her children both her sons and her daughters. But it was only the three sons however that were sent off to receive further education at the Charter House School in London and John was only 10 years old when he went off to boarding school on a scholarship and while he received a very fine education there, what he remembered was how the older boys would steal all the younger boys' food. He felt as a younger boy that he hardly received any meat at all during those early years because the older boys always got all the meat before the younger boys could eat. And he often felt that he survived on nothing more than uh, some wilty vegetables and crusts of bread. But at 17, John was accepted into Christ Church College, and that's a part of the famous university there at Oxford, England. And again, seeing as how his parents, Samuel and Susanna, were, well, they were always short of funds, he was able to go to Oxford on a scholarship. And there he primarily studied the classical uh, languages and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Well, John decided to seek ordination in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And he did this not so much to become a parish, a parish priest like his father, but in order to pursue a career in academics. Because at that time, most of the professors, or as they were known, the fellows of the university, were all clergymen. And in those days, it was always men. In 1724, John received his bachelor's degree. The next year, John began the habit of keeping a daily journal chronicling his life. And he kept up this journal for the rest of his entire life. And John's journals, however, were not like a conventional diary. Now here he recorded not just his thoughts and his feelings about life, as you might in a conventional diary. In his journals, he kept an elaborate record of how he spent virtually every minute of every day of his entire life. I think that if John had lived in modern times, I think he would have been diagnosed with a mild obsessive compulsive disorder. Furthermore, the journals used an elaborate code that was only cracked just a few decades ago by a Wesley scholar, and a Wesley scholar at Perkins School of Theology, my alma mater. Uh, this is one of the books I read in seminary. It's called The Elusive Mr. Wesley, John Wesley as his own biographer. Uh, Richard B. Heitzenrotter is the, is the uh, scholar who broke the code of how to read Wesley's journal. And this is, a, this is a fascinating book, which, by the way, I recommend highly if you want to know more about John Wesley. But here, uh, Professor Heitzenrotter has put together many uh, 
of John's journal entries, and I wanted to read an example. This is uh, a record of all of the thoughts that he had during one chapel service there at Oxford. It was Good Friday, March 26, 1725. I found a great many unclean thoughts arising in chapel and discovered these temptations to it, too much addicting myself to light behavior at all times, listening too much to idle talk and reading vain plays and books, idleness, and lastly, want of due consideration in whose presence I am, for which I perceive it is necessary to labor for a great for a grave and modest carriage, to avoid vain and light company, and to entertain awful apprehensions of the presence of God, to avoid idleness, to avoid freedom with women, and to avoid high-seasoned meats. I'm not sure what that one was about. And to resist the very beginnings of lust, not by arguing with, but by thinking no more of it, or by immediately going into company and lastly to using frequent and fervent prayer. That's a lot for one chapel service. And he wrote it all down. I wanted to share then, this is a journal from just nine years later. 4 a.m., dressed. 4.15, necessary business. Necessary business means that, not unlike the character Sheldon Cooper in the TV show The Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, John Wesley had a bathroom schedule, which he referred to as necessary business. 4.30, wrote in diary, followed by private prayer. 5 a.m., wrote in questions, more private prayer. 5.45, lighted a fire. And it goes on and on. 7 a.m., religious talk. 7.45, dressed. 8.30, morning prayers. 9 o'clock, morning prayers. 9.30, morning prayers. 10 o'clock, morning prayers. He prayed a lot. Um, 11 a.m. spoke to uh, someone named Morgan. 12 noon, uh, read the Bible. More prayer. One, wrote in his diary. Two, worked in the sermon. Uh, 4.10, evening prayers. 5 o'clock, private prayers, more talking to people at 7, religious talk, and finally at 9 p.m., he, he wrote in his diary, had private prayer, had necessary business, then undressed, and started it all at 4 a.m. the next morning. Now, for the rest of his life, John was obsessed with not wasting a single moment of his life. And even today, these following questions, which were written by John Wesley, are, are asked of every single person before they are ordained as a Methodist clergy person. And again, these are Wesley's words himself. Will you observe the following directions? Be diligent. Never be unemployed. Never be triflingly employed. Never trifle away time. Neither spend any more time at any one place than is strictly necessary. Be punctual. Do everything exactly at the time. And do not mend our rules, but keep them. Not for wrath but for conscience' sake. I actually said yes to that. I can't say that I've kept all of these rules of Wesley, but I certainly uh, had to say yes to them if I wanted to be ordained. If I could speak to him today, however, I would ask John Wesley if keeping such an obsessively 
detailed journal was really the best way for him to be spending every moment of every day. But I do think his journals do provide a very interesting picture on his life and on his psyche and on who he was as a person. Well, in 1726, John was elected a fellow. That is, he became a professor at Lincoln College, which is another part of Oxford University. He received his master's degree, but he did decide to return to Epworth for two years to assist his father there in the parish. And it was while he was there back at Epworth that he was ordained a full priest. In 1729, he returned to Oxford, and there he began his teaching career. Now, when he returned, he was able to reconnect with his younger brother, Charles, who by this time was himself a student at Oxford. And since being at Oxford, Charles had become quite serious about his faith. And he and a few friends asked John if he would mentor them in the faith and help them in their studies and in their religious practice. And though no one could have predicted it at the time, the meetings of John and Charles and Charles's friends marked the very beginning of the Methodist movement. Well, it wasn't long before one of the groups suggested that they lived out their faith by visiting the prisoners at the local jail. And so before long, they were visiting the poor and the elderly, and they eventually decided to pool their resources, and they hired a teacher to teach the low-income children that lived there in Oxford. And I might add this that I read just a few years ago about their trips to the jail. He was visiting the jail at a time when you could be thrown into jail for being gay. And there was a young man who was serving, I think, a two-year sentence there in the jail at Oxford for being gay. And none of the other prisoners would talk to him, and even none of the other of, the, of, these, of these friends of John and Charles would visit him. But it was John Wesley alone who visited this young man while he was being in prison for being gay. And I find that deeply moving, and I was actually very... Uh, heartened to learn that, that he was the only one who would visit that young man. Well, John figured out that he could live on only half of his salary, so the rest of his income went to helping those in need. And for example, he decided that visiting a barber and getting a haircut was a waste of money. And so that's the reason for the rest of his life he wore his hair long, even though many people made fun of him for that. Well, John and Charles and their friends, they were just obsessed with fulfilling all these prescriptions that were laid out in Jesus' parable of the sheep and goats, which you may remember. They were very serious about feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and the imprisoned, just as Jesus had preached there in his famous parable. Though some scholars have disputed this, the following saying is attributed to John Wesley, and you may have heard it. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Well, even if he didn't say it, that just sounds something like something that John would say. So I like to think that he actually did say this. Well, it was not long, however, because they're in the world of academia, and sometimes in the world of academia, people can be cynical, and so it wasn't long before the actions of these do-gooders of John and Charles and their friends, it came to the attention of the other students and the other fellows there at Oxford. And that's when the name-calling began. Here uh, they were variously christened the Holy Club, the Godly Club, the Reforming Club, the Enthusiasts, 
this is a long one, the sacramentarianists, and this is my, fa my personal favorite, the Bible moths. I think that one's funny. Of course, the name that stuck was the Methodists because of the very methodical way that they went about doing good. Well, at one point, one of these young Methodists unexpectedly died. Uh, the club went from simply then being a laughingstock then to being a source of genuine controversy. Many assumed it was the fanatical fasting that they did that contributed to this young man's death. And the club became the talk of the town, but not just in Oxford. Uh, it became the talk of the town in London as well. Well, the unwanted publicity would foreshadow the trail of controversy that would sometimes follow John for the rest of his life. Now, he wrote a letter to this young man's father explaining that, yes, they did indeed fast two days a week, but by fasting, all that meant is they didn't eat that day until mid-afternoon. It wasn't extreme fasting at all. And John also outlined for the father all the good that his son and his friends had done for all the disadvantaged there in Oxford. And this father was so touched by John's personal letter that he became a staunch supporter of the Methodists and even sent his second son there to be mentored personally by John Wesley. Over three more years, John and Charles and their friends continued their customs of meeting together regularly for spiritual formation and then going out into Oxford to fulfill all these teachings of Jesus. And they did this right up until the day that John and Charles sailed off for the American colony of Georgia in 1735. And we're going we're gonna to take up John and Charles' we'll, John and Charles' adventures, or should I say misadventures, in Georgia next week. There are several things, though, several themes that emerge from John's time at Oxford that I think help define what Methodism would come to represent. And first of all, because John was a fellow or a professor there at Oxford, this prefigured that Methodism would become a denomination that stressed an educated clergy. Virtually all ordained clergy in the United Methodist Church have at least a master's degree with extensive theological training at the graduate level. And even non-ordained licensed clergy have had very extensive theological training, often at a seminary setting. And John Wesley's writings, it is obvious that he is well-versed not just in theology and the Bible, but in a wide range of subjects and topics. He was quite interested, for example, in the effects of electricity. This was a major subject of scientific um, endeavor and experimentation at the time. Remember, this is only maybe a few decades before we hear of Benjamin Franklin and how he experimented with electricity. And, and John thought experimenting with electricity was also fascinating. John saw no conflict between science and faith. He also ministered the poor by providing rudimentary medical care. He studied greatly what was the latest medical advice at the time, and he even opened a free medical clinic there in London. He wrote a book outlining, outlining hundreds of home remedies that he had come up with or he had heard about. And this book was called The Primitive Physic, or An Easy and Natural Method of Curing Most Diseases. Now, this may not be a book you've heard of, um, but it was actually during his lifetime the best, sell best selling of anything he, he wrote. Um, it, it was very popular both in England and the American colonies. And for many people living out in the colonies where there was no doctors, uh, the primitive physic became their medical handbook by which they, they, uh, they had medical care for themselves and for those they loved. 
but I did want to say some of these cures would be questionable by today's standards, but though some, though, are very much on the mark. And again, reading from Hotzenrotter, this is John Wesley's cure for baldness. Rub the part morning and evening with onions till it is red, and then rub it afterwards with honey, or electrify it daily. All I can say is John Wesley never went bald, so maybe there was something to this. But there's also, uh, this is his prescription if someone has drowned or has been struck by lightning. Um, Plunge him immediately into cold water, blow strongly with a bellows down his throat. This may recover a person seemingly drowned. It is still better if a strong man blows into his mouth. This sounds a lot like CPR. And so some of this stuff was really uh, the latest, some of it wasn't, but John was very interested though in that people had this information. This emphasis on education and being open to this entire range of human learning, and this can be seen in the modern Methodist church's approach to biblical interpretation. Modern science and other types of of research is not seen as something that threatens our Christian faith but instead is seen as something that enriches and enlivens our lives, including our faith. Our theological method, known as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, utilizes not only the Bible, but tradition and reason and experience to determine and illuminate our doctrines and beliefs. Because you see, in the United Methodist Church, it's okay to harbor doubt. It's okay to question your beliefs and to strive for a deeper understanding. And we're encouraged to not just blindly follow our leaders, but to do some soul-searching for ourselves to seek the answers to tough questions. And for many in the Methodist Church, it would be considered almost a religious duty to question the leaders and to question the beliefs. You see, Wesley never required Methodists to subscribe to any long list of doctrinal minutiae. When it came to those matters of opinion outside of what he considered the historical basics, His motto was, think and let think. In the Methodist movement also, we have always strived for a balance between heart and head, of emotions and intellect, of knowledge and vital piety. That last one being a statement of John Wesley, knowledge and vital piety. As Wesley read from our passage in 1 Peter, this this passage here outlines this balance. Therefore, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourself. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will give you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. But now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, uh, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. So see, see how the text here encourages us to prepare our minds that no longer remain in ignorance, but it also exhorts us to love deeply from the heart, because head and heart together is the Methodist way. I think another theme that emerges from John's time in Oxford is this quest for holiness, this obsession, really, for holiness that was shared by John and Charles and the others. John and his friends were just obsessed with this idea of being holy, uh, completely holy in mind and body and spirit, in fact, you know, this quest is then what, left, left, uh, what led to that moniker of being the holy club. And you can see this quest reflected in the, in the journal entries that I read earlier. 
John was terribly concerned about these unclean thoughts that popped into his mind during chapel. He was very concerned about wasting time, about being idle, or about reading a book or seeing a play that didn't contribute somehow to his pursuit of holiness. And he fretted by just experiencing the beginnings of what he called lust, but what we might say today, he fretted about even experiencing just the most rudimentary sexual desires that we now considered very human. In reality, for all of his desire to please God, John was frequently gripped by a sense of anxiety that he lacked holiness and that his very salvation was in peril. He had no sense of assurance that he was loved and accepted by God. Because you see, in John's mind, he was really never good enough. And we're going to see next week how this lack of assurance played itself out in the events in the next few years in John's life. But I want to say that John did eventually develop a much fuller theology of holiness. Because you see, in the Bible, to be holy just means that you're set apart for the purposes of God. And so John elaborated on this idea and came to see being holy is about being less than following specific rules. And it's much more about how greatly one loves. To be holy is to be consumed with love. Later in life, John developed the idea of Christian perfection. And he based this on Jesus' line from, from the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Christian perfection is not about being perfect in all things. It doesn't mean that you never make a mistake. It just means that you seek to where your motivation is nothing but love. To be holy, to be perfect, means that you love perfectly. And one thing then that holiness can never be then is holier than thou. Because the second, I mean the, 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 the absolute split second that you begin to compare your own holiness favorably to those that you consider less holy, then you've fallen from holiness because holiness is love. But it would be a few more years before John realized all this true nature of holiness, and that would be after his time in Georgia. And it was after that time that, that John was invited back to Oxford as a guest preacher. And there he preached one of his most famous sermons. It was titled, The Almost Christian. And in this sermon, he implored his audience to never settle for being a half-Christian or an almost-Christian. Strive to be, as Wesley called, what Wesley called, an altogether Christian. To be perfect then in love. That is true holiness. So intellect and emotion and science and faith and head and heart, holiness in the pursuit of love, that's the Methodist way. And that's a holy club that I want to be part of. Amen.
Now we come to the part of our service where we lift up our joys and concerns up to the Lord. And we have several prayer requests today. I want us to keep praying as we have every week, and which I'm asking you all to do every day, is you can need to pray for this church to get done uh, so that we can be back in our building in its entirety and, and doing the full ministry to which we have been called. And so for our church to be completed, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I want to continue to be praying for... Um, the Beth Israel Synagogue in Colleyville that suffered through that horrible hostage situation last week, but also to be praying then for the safety of all of our faith communities. Uh, there's been uh, just a lot of soul-searching uh, this last week among religious and faith leaders about how to keep our people safe, and also how do we fight uh, this demonic anti-Semitism and bigotry that still plagues us and has been plaguing our society for 2,000 years. So I would like to be praying um, for all the faith communities that we can be safe and that we also be places of holy love and be praying for all, all of our Jewish brothers and sisters and all those who suffer from religious and racial bigotry. So Lord, in your mercy. We want to be continuing to pray for all of those that are affected by COVID. We seems like we pray about this every week and particularly for those in our schools, our school kids, our teachers, uh, the administrators, the staff. Um, Janice Elliott has asked that we pray for her great-niece Arden. Her school is closed due to COVID outbreak, and her whole family is in quarantine. And by the way, this would also then be Debbie and Lou's granddaughter. So for uh, Arden and her family and her school and all those that are still being affected by COVID, Lord, in your mercy. Uh, Jan Noel has asked us to just keep her in her prayers this week uh, because this week is the anniversary of the death of her husband, Guy, in 2004. And so, Jan, we want you to know that we will be, you will be in our prayers this week. I know this is going to be a tough week for you. And also, she has another eye injection on Tuesday. So uh, let's pray that God's presence and God's strength and comfort is with Jan during this week. So, Lord, in your mercy. Uh, and also then prayers for Donna Solberg and her family. Uh, her, everyone in her apartment building must move out by February 16th. So I'm sure that's uh, really disrupting the lives of those persons. So for Donna and her fellow residents and her family, Lord in your mercy. We also have a blessing today. Uh, gosh, Jenna, you're getting really old now. But on Friday, Jenna McCall over there is going to be turning 31 years old. Yeah. You know, well, you know, you started going down here a year ago when you turned 30. So this is just further down the hill. Um, I'd love to tell you life gets better. A actually, often it does. So. Uh, but anyway, nonetheless... We do pray God's blessings upon you in this year ahead. We pray that your husband is really, really good to you on your birthday and does nice things for you and gives you a really nice present. And as I always like to say, I, I pray that um, a year from now you're going to look back and think, this was one of the best years of my life. And so God's blessings upon you, Jenna. And so now, with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we give those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand as you are able and join in our closing hymn number 384, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. We'll be trying to uh, sing as many uh, Wesley hymns as we can during this sermon series. Uh, that was a Wesley hymn as well as our first opening hymn, uh, Maker in Whom We Live. And so just be keeping that in mind as we're singing some of this wonderful heritage we have as Methodists because the Wesleys were such great hymn writers. Just a reminder, you can always find a recording of our service on our website, tumcd.org on our Facebook page, and on our church podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And your action item for this week, continue to pray for Trinity and to seek holiness in love by not being holier than thou. And so now, receive this benediction. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us go forth to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue examining our Methodist heritage through the life of its founder, John Wesley, in our sermon series, The Faith of John Wesley. You'll find recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.